1 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 8, says, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. And you are stoked to be in church this morning, aren't you? <laughs> Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for the entirety of the word of God. Lord, we thank you that your word, all of it, you tell us, is inspired by your spirit, profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that as men and women of God, we could be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And Lord, we love your word. We thank you that we can allow the truth of your word and our study of it to be a part of our worship. And so we ask as always, as we continue now to worship by submitting our hearts to the truth and the authority of the word of God, that Lord, you'd prepare each of us accordingly and all of us collectively as the church body and that your spirit would speak, Lord, through what you have spoken that we might know your will and understand your ways. And we ask this expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> you know, at times I think it is very, very critical to not just hear words alone, but to fully understand the basis from which those words have been spoken. Let me say that again. I think at times it is really critical to not just hear words alone, but rather to fully understand the basis from which those words are being spoken. And that is greatly essential to healthy understanding and proper receptivity to what is actually being said, and sometimes what's not being said. And I think that is really a very important thing and true in regards to today's passage. Uh, this point where we're at this morning, it is both good and wise to remind ourselves of the basis of the letter of 1 Timothy, or as we've said before, the purpose that God, by the Holy Spirit, gave to us this particular letter in the word of God, again, if I can draw your attention back to chapter 3, once again, verse 14 and 15, Paul said, These things I write to you, though I hope to come shortly, but if I'm delayed, I write so that, this is why the Holy Spirit prompted him to write this particular letter of Scripture, that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar of the support system, and the ground, the basis and foundation for truth. So again, the church is the house of God. God is the father of the household, and God wants his household to operate certainly in a healthy way, as any parent would. And since God is the master of the house, he is freely able to establish the rules of the house, the boundaries of the house, how he wants people to conduct themselves within his house, and he therefore can instruct the way that he wants things to operate. And in light of that, as we said when we began chapter 2, chapter 2 specifically, Paul writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, is dealing with the conduct of the church now in regards to public worship. Next week, we'll see in chapter 3, he's specifically dealing with the subject in chapter 3 of leadership criteria and requirements and qualifications for church leadership. Chapter 2, he's addressing the subject of the public worship gathering, discussing what matters to God as we assemble together as the church family, giving instruction regarding meeting times, 
what's to happen during those times, what's to be the order of how those things happen, how we're to function and operate according to what God has deemed proper. And we see that God's given certain responsibilities to be upheld. Certain things are to be what matters most to God, the priorities of what he's doing, even restrictions and boundaries being given. And again, it's not an exhaustive list covering everything regarding public worship and gathering time. That's why we read our entire Bible. That's why we study the entirety of the word of God and let scripture compare with scripture so that we stay in context of all things. But that being said, it is clearly informative when you couple it with other New Testament passages to help us best determine protocol from God's will for church life and specific protocol and order of what governs church meetings and church gatherings. It reveals to us that when the church comes together to assemble for public worship, when we gather together, God says there should be a prescribed order to things. There's a method and way by things are supposed to operate. And again, really, we always want to remember the reality that Jesus claimed headship over the church. No pastor is the head of a church. No group of ruling elders ultimately is the head of a church. Jesus is the head of the church. If anything, a pastor or a group of leaders among the church is really not to be giving direction, but really seeking hard to receive direction. From the mind of Jesus, the chief shepherd and overseer of our souls, and then just to implement that direction according to the word of God and the spirit of God and to seek to the best of their human ability as fallible individuals, but yet to the best of their ability to be sensitive according to the scripture and the spirit of God. What is Jesus directing us to do? What is the head of the church guiding us to do and to try to really stay in cooperative uh, attitude towards that as they implement what the Lord's directing? So again, as he's the head of the church, it gives Jesus complete freedom, just like his heavenly father, to dictate, therefore, the rules, the guidelines, how he prefers us to honor him in public worship. Now, in this section, as you can tell from the reading, Paul, by the Spirit of God, is dealing with the role of the men in connection to the women, specifically the two and only two genders that exist, the males and the females, and how we are to conduct ourselves in the house of God. Now, I'm going to very briefly make a few points to give to you up front should you opt to tune out in the midst of this teaching. That way I know they were stated. The first evident thing we're going to see is that the men, God says here, should be concentrating on providing leadership as well as living right in their personal, moral, and spiritual lives. The men should be focusing and concentrating on providing leadership and living right personally. He's also going to say here that women should care about how they represent themselves and how they allow themselves to be represented among the family of God. And he's going to say particularly with godliness and good works and loving acts of service and a Christ-like spirit. And also, he's going to indicate that women should also be respectfully cooperating with God's design regarding order and authority in the church, even as they should within the domestic family life. Now, regarding the public worship gathering, look with me what he says in verse 8. He says, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and Doubting. Now, please note, the role and responsibility here given to the men, and I'll talk more about that in a minute, I'm saying that for emphasis perfectly, the men in the church, is to fulfill their intended purpose by God's calling and design to exercise leadership. Back in verses 1 and 2, we saw there that God's word put the priority, first of all, remember we talked about that, the first of most importance, God said top priority when the church comes together was to be very simply seeking God, not having great social activities, not great programs, not the best, most efficient. Well, our church does this and we do that, that the church's primary goal is to help facilitate getting people seeking God, praying and worshiping and seeking God. That above all else is the first priority that we're depending upon God, spending time with God and experiencing God. Now, 
Paul here zeroes in on in verse 8, where he places the responsibility to make sure that that is happening. And you notice he places the responsibility for that happening, making sure the church is seeking God as we're supposed to. He places that responsibility upon the men. He says right here in verse 8, I desire that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Now, underline those three words, that the men. And here's why I'm telling you to do that, because in verse 1 and verse 4 and verse 5, Paul uses the terms all men in a universal and generic way, whereby he is referring to all of mankind, or we might say all of humanity. We've seen already in this chapter three different times that we're to pray for all men, that God desires all men to be saved. He tells us in the same chapter, there's one meter between God and men. Now there, he's talking about mankind, right? God wants all of mankind, all of humanity to be saved, not just men to be saved. God wants us to understand that Jesus is the one meter between God and all of mankind, all of humanity. But here, he now specifies in verse 8, in his language very clearly in the writing, a definite article right in front of the word men, where he inserts the definite article in the original language that the men, not men, not all men, as far as mankind, but that the men do this very thing. The grammar is to clearly differentiate the difference between the men, and he's going to say in the next verse is the women, or the males in contrast to the Females. It's inserted to purposely create a contrast. So he's not saying here in verse 8, as he did in other places, I want all of men or all of mankind to be praying everywhere. Not that God doesn't tell us to do it, but that's not what he's saying contextually in the passage here. He very purposely puts a definite article here to clearly say God wants the men, in contrast to the women, he wants the men taking the lead in times of public worship and prayer and seeking God, especially as the church comes together. He's saying that the men should be leading the way in this in both their actions, their participation, and their example. In other words, God's word teaches it is the role of the men in the church. It is the responsibility of the males in the church to guide the way as leaders in regards to prayer in regards to worship, whether that's in the home life or whether that is in the church family life when we come together as well. Now, that applies in two ways. First of all, regarding our commitment to gather. In other words, everywhere and in all places, when the church gathers together, the men should be the ones, as God says, leading the way in regards to the importance of gathering together to seek God. It should be the men who are guiding the way forward by their example and their leadership that we need to come together publicly and assemble and worship and seek God and pray. The men should be the ones encouraging their family to attend times of public worship. The men should be the ones who are taking responsibility to set the standard that their family is seeking God and is going to continue seeking God, the men should be the one exercising leadership to involve themselves and be directing their family to participate, whether it's in church gatherings, in prayer times, whatever that may be. Not saying, I'm going to do man stuff, you take the kids to church. Nah. You're already not doing man stuff. God says this is the man stuff. Again, remember Joshua, that famous statement many of us know, he said in distinction to what others or other families may have been choosing to do in regards to their spiritual lives, and then he said this strong statement Joshua did with conviction. He said, but as for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. 
In other words, Joshua said, you can choose to do what you want to do with your own household. I don't have authority over your own household, and you can choose what you want to do in regards to that and your relationship with God and whether you're going to allow idols in your family life or you're going to do this. But he says, but as for me and my household, I know what we're doing. (laughs) We are going to serve the Lord. And with conviction, Joshua expressed that very biblical principle. As men, gentlemen, we need to be embracing our role here. When it comes to spiritual matters, let me just say this, and I think I can say with a fair degree of credibility coming up on on 28 years of marriage, as men, I'm telling you, I'm convinced the heart of every wife is she is longing for her husband to exercise leadership and authority as it pertains to being a spiritual leader by example and encouragement and leading the way, being strong in this area. God's design, as well as I'm convinced every woman's inner desire, is to have her husband follow in such a way the Lord whereby he becomes an example and inspires her whereby he is the one leading the way forward and allowing her to come along beside him and behind him and the one inspiring and directing the importance of seeking God. And so let me say in connection to that too, for any of you single men in the room this morning, you ought to be learning if above all else, rather than looking for a wife, learn how to be a spiritual leader first. And that begins with learning how to lead your own life as an individual Christian man. That is that you have the capacity to lead yourself spiritually, to read the word of God consistently, to pray, to take serious going to church and staying in fellowship with Christians, and and that you are able to lead yourself spiritually. Please, I beg you, before you take a wife to yourself, if you're not ready to lead another person spiritually. Practice leading yourself. And let me give a free tip to the single ladies. Don't you ever embrace a relationship with a potential husband if you see he cannot lead his own life yet spiritually. You're not the answer for him. You becoming the spiritual nanny is not going to help in the situation. What you need to do is let him grow and let God work in his life until either he comes to a place where he's ready for that and you're probably just going to interrupt it in the meantime because you're a pretty little girl distraction in his life. So it would be better to just let him wrestle that out or reality is protect yourself and wait on the Lord for finding that man, because you will, who can lead you properly spiritually and be the spiritual gentleman and hero that you want him to be so that you can experience what God intends for you. So as men, we are to take that role and responsibility in regarding if you would, the the importance of that. But also I think that applies as well as we come together as the church that the men are to lead the way even regarding the conduct, as he's going to talk about more, of the public worship gathering. That is, in regards to what's happening when the church does come together. That it is to be the men by God's intention and design and determination who are the ones exercising oversight and direction during the meeting times of God's people. That the word of God teaches that that is something that God has delegated to men to exercise oversight and spiritual leadership from the teaching perspective to the governance perspective that men should be leading the way in what happens and how things happen among the gathering of God's people. That is a role and responsibility that God by distinction has given to the men as sons of God for proper order. Men should be providing that oversight among public church and worship gatherings. And let me just say, if that's not happening, we have compromised God's design. If we choose to do anything different than that, what we are saying is God doesn't know what he's doing, we do better. That usually doesn't work out very well in any area of the spiritual life. Again, the word of God just clearly says, despite human failures or whatever reasonings we come up with, God says, I desire, therefore, that the men would be the ones praying everywhere and providing that leadership. Now, guys, because of this important responsibility, and it is a huge responsibility, notice in the second half of verse 8, God requires that our lives be right personally in order to fulfill this huge responsibility because those two things go hand in hand. If we're going to have that huge responsibility, then it's also to say with it, then we got to make sure that we're right with the Lord 
personally to handle that. That's why he says, look, lifting up holy hands, this is to the men, without wrath and doubting. Now, lifting up of the hands refers to here our relationship with the Lord, you might say. Lifting up of the hands, whether in prayer or in worship, the idea implies humble dependence. God, my hands are open. I need your help. I'm looking to you. I'm empty-handed. I'm dependent. So it speaks of relationship with the Lord. So again, our hands also represent what we're involved in. And that's why he says regarding what we're doing, lifting up, notice the word there in the text, holy hands. The idea is that my hands, your hands, gentlemen, are not to be involved in things such as defiled things. We're not to have our hand involved in sin and compromise. We're to be able to lift up before God clean and pure hands from clean and pure hearts and lives where we are lifting dependent hands before God in a spirit of holiness because we're practicing holiness and we're seeking to walk in the spirit and not compromising and living in personal and private sin. Again, Psalm 66 says this, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. That's strong language. The word regard there literally means to cherish. The idea is if a person chooses to cherish and keep going with their sin because they cherish their sin so much and they won't let go of it, then God says, until you're done worshiping your sin, I'm going to refrain from answering your prayers to get your attention. And so again, he says that notice sin, cherishing, living in private sin can affect very powerfully our prayer lives, which is never good. He also speaks about not just relationship with God, but notice in the second part of verse 8 at the end, he speaks about our relationship as men with other people. He says there that we're to lift up holy hands, but notice he then adds, without wrath and doubting. Now, wrath speaks of just outbursts of anger, right? It's not anger. It's the outbursts of anger where arrogant and cruel attitudes take over and the emotion of anger becomes an outburst of wrath and mistreatment of others. James 1 tells us that we should be what? Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. And then he says, here's why. Because the wrath of man, it doesn't produce the righteousness of God. It never does. So this can be a great interference. Interesting, he also adds, notice there in verse 8, without doubting. Now, we instantly hear the word doubting in the English, and we think right away of doubting God, unbelief. Probably this term is translated a little bit better in some of the other translations. Uh, other translations render that without disputing or without dissension or quarreling. The, the literal Greek term there, and it is, I understand why they use doubting, because it speaks of skeptical criticism. In other words, what the Holy Spirit's zeroing in on that word of doubting, the idea is being overly doubtful towards your fellow man. We call it being suspicious in attitude. And God says here, look, it's not healthy when you have this overly skeptical, critical, suspicious attitude where you're doubting fellow humanity in such a way that you find yourself causing disputes and dissension and quarreling because of your suspicious doubtful spirit towards your brother in Christ or your sister in Christ. It, it disharmonizes relationships. And again, no doubt God brings these things up because as men, if we were to be very honest, we can be prone to these failures in our human relationships, not controlling our anger, right, gentlemen? I mean, letting our pride get the best of us where we get harsh and angry and rude in our behavior or, like anyone can, becoming overly critical in attitude becoming overly suspicious and reading into everything and just kind of becoming a little self-righteous and harsh and critical and dismissing the value of others just so somehow we can, you know, kind of justify that. And, and God says, look, you're going to disharmonize not only your relationship with God, but you're going to cause disharmony in your relationship with other people's people. And God's word clearly tells us that unhealthy relationships affect and hinder our prayer life as Christians. It's interesting, God specifically says to husbands, to the males, 1 Peter 3, that if we mistreat our wives, then God says your prayers will be hindered. What's God saying? You're not right in relationship with your wife. You're harsh, you're mean, you're cruel, you're not being understanding with her. God says, I I'm just gonna stop listening to you because you may say, well, she's my wife. And God says, she's my daughter, bud. 
And look, I have three daughters. If one of my son-in-laws mistreated one of my daughters, it would cause a little strain between our relationship. Wouldn't mean the relationship would be over, but it, right? And so God's a father. But again, the principle is very clear, very, very evident. If we're not treating people properly, and look, this isn't just the men. Don't tune out, ladies. If we're not treating people properly, we're certainly not in healthy relationship with God. The Bible teaches that in numerous places. So God here is saying this to the men because what he's reminding us is this. If as men, if we're not treating people properly or we're living in sin and not in relationship with God, we are not good candidates to stand up and be leaders in our homes or in the church. God's not okay with that. God never looks favorably upon those who want to minister publicly yet live in compromise and sin privately and in spiritual hypocrisy or selfish attitudes. As men, God intends for us to live right so that we can then lead others properly. And those two go hand in hand. He'll emphasize that in the next chapter to a great degree. And if men fail to lead in the church, often it's because they are failing to lead at home first. And then here's the problem. It creates a vacuum, and then women are tempted to cross over a boundary because of the failure of men. And that never becomes a good thing. Let me encourage you this morning, gentlemen, if you are leading strongly, Bro, keep at it. The church is stronger for it. You keep doing what you're doing. By the same token, let me say in love, if you are failing to lead, gentlemen, as a husband, as a father, for whatever reason, your own carnality and selfishness, your own passivity and laziness or immaturity, I have one word for you. Wake up. Please. Wake up and embrace your God-given role and the authority he's given to you to exercise in a healthy way for the sake of your family and the body of Christ. Now, having addressed and instructed the men, the ladies feel better. I really beat up on the men there, right? Yeah, it's okay. Having instructed and, and addressed the men, he now turns to the women in verse 9, and notice what he says. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good work. So notice here he addresses now as he turns to the women, and again, there's our definite article again, the women, that in public worship they should be concerned, the Bible says, with how they represent themselves before God, and before others, God's instructing the women here in these verses, referring to the mature females in the church, to lovingly and responsibly consider the preparation of themselves as they go to the house of the Lord when they come together to seek God and with God's people. He begins this next section, verse 9, by saying, in like manner also. In other words, in the same way that the men are called to lead in the public gathering, and to have lives that are pure and right before God as men, he says in the same manner, likewise also, God does require something of the women as well. And the first thing he says in our verses here is that the women would adorn themselves with modest apparel. Now, when you look at the term he uses there, adorn themselves, it literally means to put in order, to arrange, or we might resonate with, to make oneself ready. That's the idea of adorning oneself, to make oneself ready. Speaking about the way in which a woman makes herself ready personally as she prepares to come together to meet with the people of God for a gathering time. That when you're making yourself ready for that, he says, arrange, adorn, prepare yourself. And the first thing he puts out there is with modest apparel. Now, let me just say, that is not a legalistic prohibition against women looking nice when they attend and participate in gatherings at the house of God. The terms modest apparel have the idea of being well-arranged, or the Greek conveys the idea of looking appropriate. That's the idea there, of modest apparel, looking appropriate. It indicates that you should seek to represent yourself among God's people in a respectful, appropriate way that you're taking into consideration, we're going to seek God, we're coming together as God's family, and I should care about my appearance to a degree. I don't want to be a distraction either way, but I want to represent Jesus as a daughter of the Lord, and I want to have respect and be a good steward 
in regards to these things. So the implication here, as you can kind of see in the language, is not to be overly bold in the way you draw too much attention in the way that you represent yourself. Even as men, listen, ladies, even as men can be at times failing to lead, I think women sometimes are tempted to falter and stumble in this area, and that is failing to remember the powerful influence God has given to women on this earth. And if you fail to remember that, you can cause challenges and problems. So he says, when you're adorning yourself, preparing yourself, do it with modesty. And he adds into that what to do. He says there in our verses with propriety. And he also says there in verse nine with moderation. Propriety is defined as in accordance with recognized principles of usage, not abusing those things. Moderation is defined as this way, without excess, avoiding extremes of expression, and observing reasonable limits. So again, what's the idea here? Since in corporate gathering times, we know, okay, what did verse 1 and 2 say? When we come together, we're coming together to do what? Seek God. We're not having a party. This isn't a dance club. We're coming together to seek God, to focus on God, to experience God, to hear something from God, right? That's, that's the goal of what we're doing, focusing on spiritual things. So he's saying to the ladies in love and wisdom, seek to wisely present and represent yourself in a balanced way of moderation, recognizing what's proper and appropriate and what may not be proper or not appropriate as you come together with the family of God. And he even tells them what not to do there in verse 9, and the, in the ancient culture, this was very evident to what he was saying. He says, not, notice, not with braided hair, gold, pearls, and costly clothing. Now, the idea there of those terms, it represents extravagance and excess. And if you do a little study on the ancient culture, you'll see that in the ancient culture, women were fiercely competitive in regards to their appearance and how they looked. Now, I know none of these things apply today, but just bear with me for a moment. Their social appearance and how they represented themselves when they left their home or in public was extremely important to them. So they would create these high, multi-level hairdos of braiding and weaving and putting even at times, you know, flecks of gold and sometimes even jewels into their hair in such a way and glitter. And it was all intended to just be extremely extravagant to adorn themselves in such a way to indicate they were wealthy and incredibly beautiful and sophisticated as they went out to enhance their beauty. And it really was nothing other than a status indicator. It was to impress people with how fashionable and wealthy or beautiful you may be. Now, again, I know none of that kind of stuff is an issue today. But God just says, in case it could to some degree, he's not prohibiting, again, let me just say, he's not prohibiting looking nice as a Christian lady. I can tell you as a husband of 28 years, if you're married, your husband likes when you look nice. He appreciates when you look attractive and you take care of yourself. There's nothing, that's not what the Bible is doing here. This isn't some legalistic idea that, that a woman think if she, you know, refrain from beauty and just trying to look as ugly as possible. Like, look how spiritual I am. I'm so ugly. I'm just, I mean, that's just, that's just legalism. It's just nothing other than another form of legalism. So that's not what he's describing. Paul, in wisdom by the Spirit, is warning and instructing against the problem of what the verses and context talk about, the problem of extravagance in, in appearance, of going beyond limits to a degree, particularly when you're gathering with God's people, or we might also address being provocative in how you do dress, or seductive in the way you do represent yourself arousing people improperly because both of those cause problems and are out of balance. And they're out of balance in two ways. Let me just candidly say, first of all, if you do that, ladies, you are going to stumble other women. You're going to stumble other women in an unloving way because they're going to be so distracted admiring your appearance and feel intimidated and shamed and embarrassed, perhaps to some degree, that they're going to be distracted through their jealousy or if they're married, they may actually be angered because their concern is you're walking around looking like that and I got a husband here with me. And now you're stumbling my husband. 
And in the same way, look, if this is not taken into consideration, it can become a stumbling block to men as well because they can struggle with temptation, as I said, especially if a female is wearing very tight-fitting clothes or revealing things in a way that's you know, beyond normal appropriateness in such a way where there's just not sensitivity to such things. So after warning about what's not proper, he also says, look, instead, this is where the focus should be. Here's what is proper. Look what he says in verse 10. But which is proper, in other words, make this your intentional focus, proper for women who profess godliness, they want to be a godly woman, which he says is represent yourself with what? Good works. Good works. The idea is Seeking to be a godly woman foremost that demonstrates your love and commitment to God, displaying a lifestyle that reflects the spirit of Jesus and a love for God and that you just want to be a godly woman and, and a lady representing herself whereby she's noticed among the church as, man, that woman, she's a servant-hearted spirit. She's serving in this way. And look at the good work. She does that and she does this and she does these wonderful good works. And, and the guy is adorning yourself in a way among God's people where you're, you're in an appropriate way drawing attention to your godliness. That's something good to draw attention to because that does the opposite. That causes other ladies to be inspired to say, man, I like to be like her. She seems like a really godly woman, and she really represents G. And, and again, the idea here is, is you're being a good example rather than being a distraction. Again, the Bible simply instructing women, put the emphasis not on foremost physical beauty, but really try and keep the emphasis, God says, when you come together with the church family on inward spiritual beauty. That is the first Peter 3 thing, that inward, meek, and quiet, and gentle spirit of godliness, a spirit of influence where you show that you love Jesus and you care about being a, a, a good servant and ministering and so on and so forth, and that that would be a good example to encourage others. Now, he then moves on in verses 11 and 12 to instruct the women to cooperate with God's design of the male leadership and authority within God's house. He goes on, verse 11, to say, let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I don't permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. So even as the men are to be faithfully leading and guiding, God's word says here that in the same way, women, the ladies, are instructed to be graciously learning and allowing themselves by God's design to be led and allowing themselves to be guided. He says, in a spirit of silence and submission. Now, that word silence that's used there in verse 11 is the same word that's translated up above in verse 2 in the Greek, peaceable. The idea of silence there is in a quiet, peaceable, cooperative spirit. That's what the term is describing there. It's the same Greek word translated up above, peaceable. So the women are instructed to be graciously allowing themselves to be led both by their husbands and the governing authority of male leadership within the church. It's important to understand as you look at texts like this as well, that Christianity, and you can do your historical research, Christianity has given more liberty to females all over the planet than any other thing in human history, granting them a status of equality that they never had before in the ancient culture. The liberty of Christianity has been powerful to cause women to be valued and liberated in tremendous ways. But what happened, unfortunately, is that some women began to abuse their liberty a little bit too much. And to a degree of excess and the excitement of liberation, wow, we can gather with the men and pray with the men and seek God with the men. That then kind of got a little out of excess where they began to overstep proper boundaries. And Paul here, as well as in the first Corinthian church, addresses this problematic issue where it appears some women were becoming a little bit overly chatty and a little bit overly opinionated and, and kind of wanting to do a degree express those things among the church whereby they almost started, well, no, we should be doing this. Or why aren't we doing that? And I don't agree with that. And, 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 and almost wanting to, in a sense, usurp a role that wasn't healthy and was causing things to kind of somewhat become out of balance. And so here, God's word instructs that respect for God's design in the assembly must be honored. And that's why he says here, it's a privilege for all of us, and it was a great privilege for women to be able to sit in the ancient culture and learn the word of God together collectively in the general mixed company. 
He says, but let a woman learn in silence, peaceably, quietly, with all submission in spirit. So again, there's our term, peaceable, not contentious. Submission, which is a term that means to honor rank. That's all it means. Just like you honor rank in the military. Just like you honor rank in the business world. Just like you honor rank in the home. Rank means order, authority. It keeps everybody functioning properly together. And this is the idea here. Accepting God's design, the way he's put order in a prescribed way into the church with male authority. Now, let me just say for clarity, in case it needs to be said, certainly God is not conveying here whatsoever that women need to come to church meetings and just sit silent and never speak. As if as you're walking through the parking lot, you could be talking, hey, hey, and as soon as you come through the door, and then you have to sit there and just not participate and just be quiet and silent. I mean, that's, let me just say, first of all, that's ridiculous. Second of all, that's completely contrary to the entirety of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says that women were speaking prophetically among the assembly of the church. 1 Corinthians 11 describes women praying aloud collectively together in church meetings, speaking a prophetic word from the Lord. Yet such was to be done, said in that passage, in an orderly way under the covering and the authority of their husband if they were married and under the protective covering of the male pastoral elder governance presiding over the church assembly that women can exercise in those ways. They're just not to override their husband's spiritual leadership or ladies generally overriding male pastoral leadership overseeing church function. So God establishes a foundational order here for public worship. And that's why he says very clearly in verse 12, God says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, notice the emphasis, over a man, but to be in silence. Now, certainly God is not forbidding women to teach altogether. If you study the word of God, right, we see Timothy's mother and grandmother taught him as a young man the word of God because it seems either his dad wasn't doing it or that maybe his father wasn't present. I don't know. But you see there the mother and the grandmother teaching the children spiritual truths. Titus chapter 2 commands the older women to teach the younger women spiritual things, and particularly, not doctrine, domestic life. Whenever anybody asks me what should women be teaching other women, I say domestic things, because that's what Titus 2 says, how to love their husbands, love their children, manage their homes, teaching them how to do domestic life as older women teaching the younger women things that are helpful for them, discipling them. And then Aquila and Priscilla, as a husband and a wife, we see them instructing Apollo. So again, the Bible encourages women to exercise a spiritual gift of teaching in teaching other women, in teaching children. The Bible allows there to be women praying out loud in church, sharing a word from the Lord maybe, giving a testimony, reading a scripture, offering a word of encouragement, sharing a prophetic word if God gives them one. It allows women to lead in musical worship, to serve in practical forms of ministry. God's word just puts one prohibition upon the women among the church, and that one prohibition is in the area of the teaching role of what we might just call the pulpit ministry and the authority of governance among the general assembly that God says the one prohibition that I do put into place is that that area of the pulpit ministry among the mixed congregation of both males and females is to be a male teaching the mixed congregation, that it is not to be a female teaching men in the mixed congregation. That's what God says. He says not to be teaching nor to have authority, and the idea there is governmental authority, the overseers of the church, making decisions, how the church is guided and what the church is doing. Again, he says here, this is something that is reserved for the men. God prohibits for females to function in the role of being a pastor or an overseer or an elder in a local church. That one role in church life and ministry from God's design is restricted to males. And let me just say, if it helps anyone, we're going to see in the chapter next week, it's restricted even further to just spiritually mature males. He's going to spend a whole next chapter saying not just males generally, but only these kind of males. So again, it's fair to say probably 
98% of males aren't really called to be pastors and elders or overseers either. They may have other callings and functions in the church, but he's going to say these specific ones are the ones who would embrace that calling if they have that criteria and calling by God's design. So again, God's word doesn't restrict women to lead or have authority in business, in government, in organizations. They're incredible business women leaders. They're incredible leaders that over human history, women guiding governments of nations and organizations, and they do a great job. But despite what the culture ever says, God's word is very clear in regards to this subject. And look, let me just say, the work of women in the church is invaluable. If ladies in the church stop serving, there'll be a closed sign on the door probably tomorrow. We'll call you when we find some workers. You know, I mean, the ladies do a tremendous amount of work and servanthood among the body of Christ in a very valuable way. But God says clearly the ministry work of pastoral leadership and oversight and pulpit teaching, even as Jesus only in his earthly ministry chose 12 males by purposeful design to be his apostles with authority, God says that is a standard that he wants exercised. Now, he cites two reasons for this as the basis for that standard in verse 12, by reaching, notice, all the way back to creation prior to sin's influence, which he's going to try and say, look, I want you to understand this has nothing to do with cultural preference. This has to do with creation from the very first two human beings. Oh, that's just cultural. Paul's going to say, no, creation, that's the basis for this. It was God's original design and order for the basis of the family and the basis of the family of God, the church family, regarding that standard that a woman's not to teach or have authority in the church. Verse 13, he says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. In other words, this simply follows the created order of God originally. God created Adam first, the Bible teaches. He was given charge over all things. He was given the word of God. Don't touch this particular tree. God gave him his word. And the woman was then created afterwards to serve together with him as a helper, to complement him in following his calling, being obedient to God, and walking out the calling as a husband and a wife together. But again, the man was to one, be the one bearing authority in the home, providing leadership. And Paul just is saying that same pattern established in creation is the same reason this pattern exists, not just for the first human family, but also for the greater heavenly family, for God's family, the church, the same design applies. Keep in mind, again, it has nothing to do with superiority or inferiority. It has everything to do with roles, distinction. I played soccer all of my life. There were 11 players on the field. Everybody had a different position, but it takes 11 people to win a game. It's just a matter of you're called to be the goalkeeper. I'm called to be the striker. This person's called to be the halfback. It's just distinctions. It's just roles. It has nothing to do with who's the best, who's most superior, who's inferior. It's just designated roles of how we're to function, and again, for God's best. Paul says, verse 14, where Adam was not deceived, again, talking of the creation account as his basis, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So notice, Paul recalls how Eve somehow, follow me here, not functioning in accordance with God's original order and design of her husband's covering and leadership, that made her become vulnerable to the serpent's what? Deception. And to her transgressing in a way that became problematic. If you were to say it clearly, read the Genesis account, Eve took the lead spiritually. She dialogued with the devil she considered if God's word should be obeyed or deserved or questioned or whatever. She took the lead spiritually. She decided what was okay. She instructed Adam what to do. And human history's got a lot of problems now. And Paul uses this as his basis for what he's saying here under the spirit of God to say, look, this exemplifies the creation account. The roles of men and women, when they're not observed, problems happen. And you might fairly say when Eve taught Adam, when Eve governed Adam and made the decisions, problems resulted afterwards. And Paul says, that's exactly what will happen in the church. It's just what will happen. And so he says, this is why God's order has to be trusted and embraced because God has wisdom and knows what he's set in place for a good and healthy purpose for everyone involved. Now, verse 15, he concludes saying, nevertheless... 
She, referring to the female again now, will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So nice to wrap up on a nice, easy, understandable verse, right? That's probably, I would say, the toughest verse to perhaps interpret in the entire letter. And scholars dispute and go back and forth what that's saying. Let me just say what I think it's not saying clearly in, in consideration of the context of all of Scripture Clearly, it is not saying that a woman, if she's godly, will be saved and preserved and kept safe when she gives birth to children. There are many godly women who've died giving birth to children. Certainly, it is not saying that eternal salvation will come to the woman through childbirth. That's completely contradictory to the doctrine of salvation. So certainly, that's not what's being stated either. The word saved that's used there is a word that speaks of being preserved from harm, rescued from ruin. Other places in the New Testament, it's translated to also be delivered. Some places it's translated to be protected, to be made whole, or to be healed of something. Let me give you my best stab, and you're free to disagree because you're a student of the word as well, what I think it is saying in light of the context of what's being spoken of here. No doubt hearing those things, there would be some women and some ladies who may feel, oh, I feel like I just got an inferior position now. And I just, I, I feel like I'm, I'm not going to have any significance. And, and where's my purpose? And look, God's saying that's not the case at all. He wraps up saying a woman has a vital influence, a powerful ministry. And generally speaking, he's saying a woman's identity, her value, her purpose will be preserved, made whole, healed, protected from ruin, predominantly in seeking not to take over the church and be a male, or not by trying to do the things that men do and compete with men, but by embracing their feminine role and design by God to be a powerful woman of influence, to be a wife, to be maternal, to give birth to children and to teach and influence powerfully their children in their home, Fulfilling God's design will cause her incredible fulfillment. And a woman generally will find her greatest satisfaction and fulfillment not in trying to do what males do, but being who God's wired and created her to be when he made her a female. You know, what do we say? The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Because see, who gives birth to the next Chuck Smith. Who gives birth to the next Spurgeon? Who raises up the next Billy Graham? Ladies do, as they pour into and love and nurture children, or they teach children in, in, in children's ministry. Go read our schedule. The predominant people who are raising up our younger generation, even if it's not their own children, it's ladies. It's ladies. That's a powerful, powerful influence, and women are challenged to continue in that way. He says, if you continue... In faith, in other words, being a woman of faith, in love, showing the love of God, living a holy life and having self-control. Isn't that interesting? Self-control of what? Not trying to go out of the boundaries that God doesn't want. Have self-control. Embrace who God has called you to be is the best thing to do. You know, men, we need to lead the way. Got to do it. It's our calling. And all of us, men and women alike, particularly as God's people, may God help us to trust his design and to go with his design. That is the best and safest thing for the body of Christ and for the world as well. Let's stand together and pray.